Well, we're in a series uh, called Today Counts Forever, and that hopefully gives you an idea of what we're talking about. And we're starting every, well, most of them anyways, the message with this question, what if you had a glimpse of the future of eternity that was so gripping that it changed today? And we've been saying that because actually that's true whether you believe it or not, that your vision of the future changes how you think, what you do with your time, your money, your friends, your job today. Um, Today we're going to talk about today's earth matters forever, which is a little confusing for some of you because you may have grown up like I did. How many of you grew up? with another older Christian saying something along the lines of, it doesn't matter, it's all going to burn up anyway. Anyone? Okay. No, you don't have to laugh. This was real. I really did grow up with the idea that whatever I was doing on this earth didn't really matter anyways because it was all going to burn up and be useless. Uh, This was probably what repelled me from thinking about eternity because I thought, if that's the actual case, then, then do I really need to pay attention if it's all going to burn up? Um, I, I had, most recently, a problem with that. That is, I started to read my Bible. <laughs> and I began to see that there is no such image of everything that we're doing on this earth burning up and completely getting annihilated to the point where it it's not a part of the future. Now, for some of you, this is why I want you to listen today. I want to make the case that this is actually all the way through Scripture, that that every biblical writer had it in his mind that whatever the future looked like, the earth as we know it had some connection to it. Every biblical writer. Uh, In particular, um, from Genesis to Revelation. In other words, throughout the biblical story, there is consistent uh, connections of this earth matters. What we do on this earth matters, not just spiritually, although yes, spiritually, but because it's impossible to separate the physical from the spiritual in our lives, That is, if you look at the Bible, you see sins that are committed with bodies that are spiritual sins. In other words, there's a a unique connection to these two. But I think it's important for us to talk about because there's really nothing that can spark some of our imaginations of the future hope of the kingdom of God, like talking about the stuff we're doing on this earth connecting to the future. And you don't have to show of hands, but okay, let's say you grew up with that. How many of you want whatever you're doing to deeply connect to your future? Would you nod your head to that? At least you want it to be so? I would say that is what we find in Scripture, and I want to try and make that case today. I want to talk about, number one, why today's earth matters. Why today's earth matters what will it will eventually look like and how that changes us today. So why today's earth really matters, what the future earth looks like, and how that changes us today. 
One of the things I noticed as I started thinking about this is when you start talking about the future of the earth, it's really difficult to not have your mind drift into climate change. Am I right or am I right? Whether you're, what, it doesn't matter what side you're on. I'm, I'm, some of you are like, finally someone's going to come down on this political issue and tell us. No, I'm not. But here's what I want to point out is I spent a few moments researching this, meaning, of course, Google and YouTube were my friends here, taking a look at some of the arguments for either for climate, well, most of it was for dealing with climate change, how to change what we're doing right now so that we can provide a future. You know what I did not find? I didn't find a why. I didn't find anyone telling me, here's why we need to think about the future Earth. All I heard was, we need to provide for our children, but not a why. I heard, we need to provide for our future, but not a why. It's noticeably absent. And I would say that tells us two things. It tells us, number one, that there's so much of the image of God in every one of us that we just can't help but think, isn't there something about this earth that is connected to our future, no matter what you believe or not? But I, I would argue that without Christianity, without the biblical view of this, it's hopeless. There won't be a good reason why. I, I would say this, it's, it's impossible f- to, to grab my heart and say, care about the earth for the future that we describe as you become nothing and go back to dust and it all doesn't matter anyways. But really care about your future. Right? You see the problem here? It's hard to grip people with caring about this if there is no such thing as a future, if there is no such thing as an eternity. Now, the Bible's very clear about all of these things, and that's where we want to start with why today's earth matters. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 21 to 22.5, and I'll just say up front that it's not as if the Bible gives us everything we need to know about what the future looks like. There's a a lot of looking through a glass opaquely, so to speak. There's a lot of blurry images that aren't really clear. And one of the reasons that I think that is, is because we don't actually have the kind of mind and body that could comprehend the kind of future God has in mind for his children that we actually are not capable of understanding it, even if it was written out properly. But this comes from a book of the Bible that the first important thing you need to know is it's actually the revelation of John. It's not the revelations of John. So I am going to be the word police after this. Make sure that no one ever says revelations again. I'm just kidding. But it is the revelation of John. Revelation means unveiling. That's all it means. Apocalypse does not mean doom, it means unveiling. So what's happening is, John is being given an image of the future, an unveiling, so to speak. And that's what I want to read for you this morning. Starting in Revelation chapter 21, in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh, don't laugh, you're going to be reading scripture next week. The 11th Jacinth, the 12th Amethyst, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the street, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, as we read that, did you hear the discontinuity continuity between this world and the next world? Some of you maybe didn't catch that, but the names of the 12 gates are names of people who had powerful ministries here. And there are images that we have here for our help. And that's the first thing that I would say is why is this earth important is because this earth actually gives us something to compare to. Have you ever noticed how you can't compare something or you can't really understand something until you have it to, something to compare it to? You know, when you go to, uh, some of you have bought your future spouses, a very, very nice diamond. And when they bring out the diamonds, what do they do? They'll bring out other lesser diamonds. They'll put a black velvet backdrop to your diamond so you have a comparison of dark and dull with bright, bright shining diamond, right? They never bring out big diamonds that all look the same. They try to provide you with something that can easily be compared with. I think we need to understand that God understands that we understand things when we have something to compare it to. That part of why we're on this earth is so we have experiences that help us understand the next, next experience. If you have a bad Christmas one year, next year you'll say, based upon that bad experience, it's either better or worse, right? How, how do you know what really is unless you, what, you, you know what something is already? I think this is what we have in this chapter. You have this abstract concept of this future kingdom that is so good and so glorious and so hard to understand that what John is given as a vision are images that grab him because they're actually powerful in this world. So let me give you some examples about that. Uh, I, did, I, I did some math. It's the only time I've done math uh, in my study of the Bible. But I looked at 12,000 stadia, and I figured it out. And I've done a sermon, actually, on this passage for different reasons. But actually, if you look on a map, and you start in Vancouver, and you drive to, like, Winnipeg, or somewhere near Winnipeg, actually. It's, it's a little beyond Winnipeg. Uh, down to, I believe it's Houston, and then over to San Diego and up again. That's the size of this city. Now, by earthly standards, is that a big city? I would say so. It, it, I don't think it's a physical place that John is trying to describe here, but the size of it really does help how incomprehensible it is. Do you realize that you can have all the national parks inside of the city? So for some of you who are like, oh man, I don't know about this heavenly city. There's not going to be no mountains. I'm like, that's going to be some of the parks. The green spaces. Do you know how long it would take to get around in this city? It's so enormous. I did the math on this as well. 
If you drove that, and you could, because 144 cubits is as wide as a city block. And it's as high as it is wide, showing it to be this perfect cube, which is the main reason why I don't think this is at all physical. The perfect cube shows up in the Bible. It is the temple, the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. It's a perfect cube. So what this is saying is that no longer is there going to be a place within the city that God dwells. He's going to dwell in the whole city. It's a perfect cube. And you could drive around it, take you 96 hours, 60 miles an hour. Four straight days. Some of you are like, that sounds like hell to me, actually. (laughs) But it would. You could drive on it. Yeah, (laughs) electric. Who knows? I don't care who you are. I don't care how advanced technology has become. That's actually hard to comprehend just in and of itself. But I don't think that's the limits on it. I think that's to give us a little bit of idea of whatever you think, just times that by a number you can't even understand yet. This is is what John is trying to do. Why do we have this earth? Because... This future city, this new Jerusalem, this new city will be so much better than the old city that it's going to be hard to remember this old city. You ever, (laughs) I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, once in a while I get reminded of like an old girl that I used to date that I totally forgot about. Do you know why I forget about her? Because my new bride is so much better. (laughs) Now, I don't forget about her, right? I don't completely forget about her, but I might as well. Because the new is just so much better that the old just really fades into the... You forget the details of everything, and sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I, I, guess I did have a life before I got married. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't remember that life. This is how the text is actually described being described, that the new Jerusalem does not exist in pure brick and mortar, but people who inhabit brick and mortar will be part of this city, that there is something tangible, physical to this. The new Jerusalem, you see, comes down out of heaven. The new city does not, we don't go up to the new city, the new city comes down to us. It says, God will dwell with man. That is a direct association with a word called tabernacling. It's actually the word that is used to describe Jesus when he was incarnated, when he was God who became a God with skin. He dwelt with us. Now, he wasn't a God with skin that went up. He was a God without skin that came down to be with us and put skin on. That's the whole image. The whole direction of this chapter is a city that comes down. Now, what does that mean? That that just this earth exists completely? No, I would say what I think this is actually trying to describe is whatever that curtain that divided heaven and earth it was, it's gone. That there is no such thing as heaven and earth. It's all one thing. It's all new heavens and new earth. For some who have grew up with like uh, 
we don't have to care about anything because it's all going to get burned, have forgotten that Revelation says heaven is also going to be burnt and it's going to be new. However, I don't think it's talking about destroyed. I think this text is talking about it's going to be so much better that you can hardly comprehend what it used to be like. That it will be so amazing that heaven will come down, God will dwell with his people. You see, this, this is a story that is picked up in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, but actually it doesn't fully make sense unless you know the very beginning of this story, which is when God came down and he gave the dominion to humanity and he, he said for man and woman to work and keep, to take the raw materials of the earth that he had created and to do something with them and they messed it all up. This is God essentially saying, remember when you messed it all up? This new city is picking right back up where you messed it up. But it's not just going to return to what it used to be. It's going to return, it's going to become something that you can't even think. You can't even imagine while in your body and in your mind. You actually need to die physically. You need to die spiritually in order to see this. You need to experience death, which used to be an enemy, but now just becomes the springboard to your real life. So to use the great theologian Oprah, Jesus is saying, the new city is where you live your best life forever, not just now. This is the life you and I have always wanted. This is the life that there's no more tears. That's our, the, let me just move into the, the second part, which is, what is what's the future will be look, what, what will the future look like? All things will be made new. It looks like uh, chapter 21, verse one to five, it's a little like a prequel and then more detail, kind of like camera one, camera two in a movie, so to speak, that one through five gives a general idea, and then five continues to really describe what's going on in the New Jerusalem. But the primary thing is, behold, I make all things new. It does not say, behold, I make new things. All things new. Now, what's interesting about that is, that is a continuation of a story that started with a prophet called Isaiah. I don't know if you knew this. But as I read Isaiah chapter 65, I want you to listen for all of the similar things that were talked about 400 years earlier. Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17, says this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his, his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed." They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. 
They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You hear all the imagery that's very, very similar to Revelation 21, 22. All things are new. Some of those images, I think, are more helpful than other, others. But in Revelation chapter 21, you have the bride being described in the same way that the city is. And so what I think is most important is what will the new city be like? It'll be full of people that love Jesus. This is why I want to pull away from the idea of just a place, although it is a place that there is something about our future that is more tied in with people than it is with location. But it's not disassociated from location. These images that show up in Isaiah 65, you say it sounds like there's, there's death there. And I would argue, I've, I've looked at this and studied this, and actually that imagery is, again, it's imagery that is given to someone who has a hard time understanding that you don't die. <laughs> it's, it's just really hard to comprehend. When I was little, I used to think of eternity. And every time I thought of eternity, I thought of a set of stairs that went up and up and up. And eternity was a set of stairs that never ended. And at some point, I fell asleep because I was like, this hurts my brain. I don't understand that, how that works. How could stairs go up and up and up and up and up and up and never stop? doesn't make sense to me. Now I understand that I can't understand that because I'm going to need a redeemed brain to figure that one out. But here's what's interesting about even that image is the images in Isaiah 65 don't talk about a static experience of the new Jerusalem, of the new city, of the new heavens and the new earth. That there is the image of growth. There is the image of it gets better and better and better and better, and better. There's not the, some of us have the image that the new heavens and the earth, everything will be complete once we get there. That's not the image that the Bible gives. The Bible gives this image that we will progressively know more and more and more about God. Well, how long will this eternity be? Well, since God is infinite, that's how long it's gonna take to describe him. You see, that this, this is an important image, this idea of, it says, an old man who does not fill out his days, an infant who lives but a few days. How many of us have experienced someone who we felt has been cut down way too soon in their life? The new city doesn't have that. No one gets cut down in the middle of their prime. Nobody. I mean, Already that sounds like a better world than what we're living in, doesn't it? They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. How many of you have worked at a job only to find out that someone else gets to profit from all your hard work? Do you enjoy that, by the way? The fun? Do you like working at a job where you're like, oh no, I have to start this 
project all over again. It's useless. How many of you have done that and just given up altogether? It's useless. I tr- we started, it's useless. This describes a world where that never happens. Can you imagine if the work that you did in your job, whatever that is, whether it's computers, construction, finance, that the work that you put in to redeeming culture never went bad and always got better and better? Some of you were like, I, I could stay at my job if that was the case. This is the imagery that we're supposed to understand. Now, I'm not saying that everything is exactly alike. I don't think it is. But I'm saying this is why we need this comparison. This is why we need to understand our earth. This is how we can see our own jobs and the own fruitlessness of whatever it is we experience is all meant to point forward to fruitfulness of the new kingdom. That there is an opportunity for us that when we face fruitlessness in our life, it's literally in the text. Fruit every season. Do you know any tree who provides fruit every single season? I don't. We're out in BC. Peaches are in right now. Probably gone already. I'm looking forward to a new city where there's peaches every month. There's cherries every month. There's mangoes every month. That's the kind of imagery that Isaiah 65 is trying to help us with. The former shall not be remembered, as I said, not simply that we forget as much as the new is so much better than the old. Think about things that you've always longed for. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down with your Savior and ask him a question like, why did you do that? Any of you? Any of you pray like, this is what I want, but I have no idea what you want. What would that be like to after the service go out with the creator of the universe and explain nuclear power? What would that be like? And he'd explain it to you and you'd get it. Wouldn't that be awesome? Some of you are like, okay, nuclear power, no. But mangoes, yes. <laughs> this is actually what is describing God dwelling with man. God creating these things so that he could show his glory exponentially to us. That there would never be danger, never be fear, never be mental illness. That's a hot button word in our culture today, mental illness. This is describing, actually, what's interesting is in chapter 21, verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. First enemy is death. Neither shall there be mourning or crying. That's, that's mental anguish. It's not physical. It's mental anguish. Because it says, nor pain anymore. It's differentiating between mental anguish and physical anguish. They're gone. That's what it'll be like. For all of you who said, I don't believe in God because of unanswered prayer, that will never be the case in the new creation. You will never have a prayer that's unanswered. You will not have to have faith because you will see Jesus. Is that sinking in? 
You will not have to imagine what Jesus is like. You will know what he's like. When you go on Amazon, you look at a, look at a product, how many of you are like, but I'd just like to see it. <laughs> then I'd really know if this is, oh, well, it's got five-star reviews. So what? I still want to hold it in my hands. I still want to see it. I still want to use it for myself. You see, we still want that desire. The new Jerusalem, the new city, the new kingdom is, it doesn't have faith because faith is sight. You see Jesus. You see what God is like. You understand. You talk to him. And that's why all of what we're talking about will be fruitless if there was no experience with God. In fact, when you look at Genesis and you see God talking with Adam and Eve in the garden, that's what you're supposed to imagine it will be like, but better. It's like, here I am in my garden. What should I do with tomatoes, God? And he goes, this. <laughs> what, how should I build this house? How should I run this power company? How should I write this song? Those kind of things. And God will say, do it like this. Do it like this. I, I know that some of you still have a hard time comprehending this. And I've been praying about it. But I think once you, once you begin to see in Scripture what's actually going on, it will excite you about the future. It will not discourage you. That every moment of suffering can suddenly be turned into an opportunity to say, oh, but this isn't the way it's always going to be. Every loss of relationship will be, oh, there's going to be a day where I'm never going to cry over a broken relationship again. There's going to be a time when there's never going to be a conflict over something that my heart's gonna be so radically changed, that our Savior's gonna be so radically involved in the situation that it'll be impossible to be in conflict because we just love him too much. I, for one, can't wait for that. That is actually starting to change my everyday life. A friend of mine, uh, I was very, very encouraged. One of the things he said to me was, it's really looking forward to Hawaii, but in the last six months, I have been so gripped by eternity, I can wait for Hawaii, because it's going to be there. But some of the people that God has called me to, to minister into this city may not. And so I can work on that and put off my plans for Hawaii because of a of a vision of eternity that actually changes him. It's deeply encouraging to me. So I feel the same way. That's what I'm hoping for all of us at Mission Hill. Not that we'll, we will leave everything that's going on in our present world and just imagine what the future will be like, but that it will root us deeply in this world that literally we can look everything in the face and say, the worst you can do is take away my life. And that worst actually becomes the kickstart to when I'm really gonna be living anyway, so go nuts. 
I mean, that's what I see. This is the kind of people that Revelation was written to. They were facing this kind of persecution. They either were going to or they were in this kind of persecution. And this kind of stuff shows up to people whose lives are potentially being taken from them in the worst possible way known to man. And Jesus thought it would be comforting to give them a glimpse of the new city. And so what difference does this make for us? Well, I hope that it, it already has started you to think or started to help you think about this. Like, I gotta read some of these passages again. You should. You should look for this thread. Because I, I think it's, I think it's the most hopeful possible thing we can know and offer to our culture right now. I mean, wouldn't it be great if everyone who is so pro-working about climate change suddenly understood that part of that was driven by, they're gonna be here? Be, and that really it's, it's Jesus who's gonna rule that city, not activists? It's not going to be scientists who run the new Jerusalem. It's going to be Jesus, whose kingly rule is going to be so great, he's going to make scientists go, I don't even know if I have a job anymore. I used to be able to answer people's questions, and now they just go to this creator of the world. I mean, how can that not at least, you not at least want that to be true? And so the difference that it makes for us, I think, is right in 22.7, or sorry, 21.7, it says this, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Throughout the book of Revelation, the one who conquers is simply the one who holds to the faith. That's it. Not the one who wins all the battles, but the one who believes God at his word is the one who receives this it says inheritance. You read that in there, right? Inheritance. It is our faith, friends. It is our faith in God that provides us access to this. It is not your good works. It is not your ability to curb climate change. It is not your ability to serve in the church. It is your faith that Jesus Christ is your, the way, the truth, and the life for you that you believe that he is the one that has provided access to this new kingdom. That even when you don't understand, you say, but I trust you. I trust that you understand what's going on. I trust that you have my best interest in mind. Who doesn't get this inheritance is the blind spot of that, and it shows up in verse eight. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, you know, the kind of verse that does not show up on cards, postcards, Thomas Kincaid paintings, <laughs> things like that. It sounds like a weird list, doesn't it? And it's interesting that it says, as for the cowardly, as for the faithless, the detestable. 
If you look in the rest of the book of Revelation, all of those things from chapters 12 to 17 are lies that the great prostitute has told the earth. The cowardly, the people that wouldn't take God as word because they were too afraid of missing out on something. The faithless, those who chose to try to earn their way to God. Those who did not trust in God. The detestable actually is, is I think it's a bad translation, to be honest. Or, Or misleading translation would be better. Polluted is actually a better word. What does that mean? Polluted, polluted by idols, polluted by other gods that try to persuade you to believe in them but can never come through like this God can. Those are the people that don't get to be part of this. And then it says the murderers, the immoral, the idolaters, the liars. Their portion is somewhere else. Their portion is in a place that is the death of deaths. And so there's a chance for us to use this text to reflect and say, if this is really all about faith, then what are you asking, Trev? I'm saying believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn from whatever it is you're believing in and believe in Jesus Christ. It's not just your savior, but your future coming king who will rule and bring you in to be part of his reigning kingdom. (laughs) It's like if we just had Jesus, that would have been enough. And he's like, oh no, I'm way more generous than you can imagine. I want you to experience the world as I initially designed it with no corruption, nothing detestable, no one worships anything else. Everything is run exactly the way it's supposed to run. No one is greedy, no one is selfish, no one lies. No one takes advantage of anyone. It's so glorious, it doesn't say there is no sun, it says there's no need of it. He's so glorious that there's a there's almost a physical brightness to Jesus that ceases the need for the sun. I don't know if you've experienced the sun the last two weeks. It's hot. It's bright. Is there no sun? I I, I think there is. But I don't think there's a need of it. Because everything is ordered around someone else, not the sun. It's around Jesus. It also reminds us, lastly, as we close this out, that nothing done for the kingdom of God on this earth is in vain. Think about that. Of all the things you do with your life, how many of them have you done in vain? How many of them have you done where they don't actually fulfill all the promises that they have made? How many jobs have you taken that are not nearly what the person who hired you said they were? How many of you gotten into relationships, even marriage relationships, where you thought it was something so much greater than what it is and you realize it's actually hard work? How many of you have raised children and said, 
there, there is a painfulness to this. It's difficult. It's enjoyable and difficult. It's terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. This new city, this new Jerusalem, one so big you can't hardly even comprehend it, is so amazing that nothing you ever do in it will ever be in vain again. And nothing you ever do to build your life into that city is ever in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, maybe the most important verse in that chapter. After Paul has talked about resurrection and the resurrected body and saying, hey, if you think that resurrection isn't important, you got another thing coming. But then he says, because the resurrection is true, keep going. Knowing that nothing you do building this city, the city of God, is ever done in vain. It's the kind of verse that's intended to bring hope to the most difficult situations. It means like Hebrews 12, 28, which says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's the kind of kingdom I want to be part of, and I trust that you do too. If that's the case, then let me pray for us all as I call the team back up. Jesus, in every way I know that these kinds of concepts, these kinds of things that you write down are so good that we actually are not able to comprehend the depth of them. And so today is what I would ask is that your Holy Spirit provide conversation opportunities following not just the service, but throughout the days and the weeks where your people who gather together start talking about the goodness of your mercy to invite us to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That you were so good, you were not satisfied alone with just your presence. You wanted to give us more. Would you give us the faith to believe so that we can, like those who are described in the text, be called faithful, people who conquer to the end, people who are faithful to the end, would you shield our eyes from the ways that this, the kingdoms of this world distract us and try to persuade us to be part of kingdoms that will not last and are deeply shaken and faulted? Help us, Lord Jesus, as we as a church family grapple with your goodness and your grace. And would you do it for your glory and our good? It's in your name we pray. Amen.